If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 13, continuing our series going through the book of Mark, picking up in verse 1 of chapter 13 and going all the way through to verse uh, or to chapter 14. We we'll go through the whole thing this morning. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1 and continuing through the entirety of the chapter. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, I pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. But the fig tree, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, 
in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. In 1987, the band R.E.M. released a song which repeated this line over and over and over again for the chorus. It's the end of the world as we know it. And then on the last time, when they say it's the end of the world as we know it, they add this little tag to the end. And I feel fine. The lyrics of the song are pretty random. There's not really any real flow throughout the song. It seems like a collection of phrases just kind of haphazardly strung together. Regardless, when you get to this chorus, you've got to think, that's a strange way to end. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. You've got to think that that's the response that the writer of this song was hoping that anyone else would also feel. That they would also have to this same thing that he recounts throughout the rest of the song. That's the end of the world as he knows it. The response that he's going for is that they might feel fine at the end. And today's text will show us in what is easily one of the most confusing passages in all of Scripture. A chaotic, confusing chapter of biblical prophecy. It will give us the response that Jesus wants us to have to the end of the world. When we think about and try to interpret biblical prophecy, I think it's helpful to remember that most prophecies in the Bible have a threefold fulfillment. There's an earthly, literal fulfillment where the most obvious way that it can be fulfilled happens. There's a Christological fulfillment where Christ has fulfilled the coming promises, where he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. There's ultimately a a final fulfillment where at the end, the final judgment, the ushering in of the kingdom of God with the new heavens and the new earth, that's when that prophecy will be fulfilled. Here's an example that you're probably familiar with. If you look at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, it's a verse you've probably heard before. It should be on the screen behind me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That verse, that prophecy, has a threefold fulfillment. It's, uh, it's literally fulfilled when Isaiah goes to his virgin wife in Isaiah chapter 8, and they have a son. It's literally fulfilled. The, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's fulfilled in Christ. That's why we all know the verse, right? It's in the Christmas story. When Jesus literally was born of a virgin and was Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there's going to be a final fulfillment of that verse as well. When Christ returns, when God, the groom, and his church, the bride, come together and feast at the marriage feast of the Lamb, and the result of that union is Emmanuel, God dwelling with his people. That verse has a literal fulfillment the birth of Isaiah's son, a Christological fulfillment when Christ comes and is God with his people, born of the virgin. And it has a final fulfillment when, due to the consummation of God and his church, we have Emmanuel, God dwelling with his people forever. When we think of biblical prophecies, most often you're going to see that same threefold fulfillment. But where we tend to go wrong is in trying to perfectly dissect every phrase and any one of those fulfillments. If we focus on just the literal, we're missing something. If we just skip to Christ, we're missing something. If we skip to the end, we're missing something. 
So today, we're going to get into this apocalyptic prophecy of Mark 13. We'll see instances of all three fulfillments, but uh, I'm making all this clear on the front end because I don't actually think it's helpful for me to spend 30 minutes today trying to convince you what the abomination of desolation is. For me to try to explain what it means when it says that the skies will be darkened. For me to try to get into the details of all that and tell you exactly when it's coming or why. In fact, that's exactly what he tells us not to do in this text. But I think it's helpful to still look at this text and to hear in this text and be affected by it by focusing on what Christ is trying to communicate to us. And what he's trying to show us, with the response he's trying to get out of us, which has way more to do with how we react to what he's, what he's saying than the details of the, the end of the world. That's our focus today. We can see three responses to the approaching end that Christ encourages us to have. Three responses to the coming apocalypse. The first response that Christ is encouraging us to have as his people is to avoid being led astray. Do not be led astray, even when the world crumbles. Look at the first eight verses. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of rumors and wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Even though the world may crumble around you, Christ is encouraging his people to not be led astray. That's what happens in these first eight verses. The disciples are marveling at the temple as they're leaving, which we covered at the end of Mark chapter 12 last week. They're marveling at its beauty and architecture. And Christ says, yeah, you see how great all these things are? None of it's going to be here. There won't be one stone left on top of another. There's not going to be anything left. All these walls are coming down. And he goes to the Mount of Olives and begins to teach his disciples privately. We covered at the end of Mark chapter 12 last week, the end of his public teaching. The last time he was addressing the crowds, the, the whoever was around. Now he starts to talk specifically to his disciples. It's just to his followers. Just to those who are closest to him. And they ask him for a sign to know when the destruction of the temple is coming. But notice his first response, verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. They said, when is this going to happen? And he doesn't give them a date. He says, when is this going to happen? Don't be led astray. That's his first response to them. The first thing he wants them to hear and understand. He does eventually answer their question in a roundabout, non-answer way later on in the chapter. But his immediate purpose is to see that his people aren't thrown off by the craziness that's going to come. By the craziness that's going to happen. And it's real craziness that he talks about here. Fake messiahs popping up to lead people astray. Wars. Rumors of wars. To cast them into fear. And yet even after that, the end still hasn't come. Nation and kingdom rising against each other, earthquakes and famines. And notice what Jesus calls all this. Verse 8. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
That when those things arise, it doesn't mean the end has come. It means that the end has started. It's only the beginning. These things just kind of get the ball rolling. They may seem bad, but as with birthing pains, which get increasingly worse as it goes, it seems bad in the beginning. Just give it a few hours. Give it some time. See how you ask about it then. But then after it ends, after it culminates, what do you receive? Joy. Every woman at the end of the birthing pain process gets the baby at the end. They get the joy that they've been waiting for at the end. It may seem bad. And though it may get a lot worse, though it may eventually hit a crescendo, it's going to culminate in joy. So he's telling his people, don't be led astray no matter how bad it gets. Don't be led astray even though the world may crumble around you. Don't be led astray even when the church is persecuted. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Neither should we be led astray even when the church is persecuted. He starts that next verse with that the same encouragement. Verse 9, be on your guard. Don't be led astray. Don't be caught off guard by what's going to happen. He says, you, my followers, are going to be arrested and beaten and questioned. You'll be called before the powerful men of this world to give an account of what you believe. And in that moment, know that when you witness about me, who I am and what I've done, you will be proclaiming my gospel to all the nations. Proclaiming my gospel everywhere you go. Every counsel you're brought before. Every word that you write, that you, that you say that's written down and put in my word, that will proclaim the gospel to the nations. And you don't even have to worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will be there. The Holy Spirit will help. Just know that you might be betrayed even by family. Everyone's going to hate you because of me. But know that there's salvation waiting for you on the other end of your endurance. That's the note that he ends on. He doesn't say, yep, it's getting really bad. Period. He says, yep, it's getting really bad. And on the other end of your endurance, there's salvation there. Notice how much encouragement there is here. Even as he's telling them how bad it's going to get. Not just in general. Everything else in the first eight verses was kind of, it's going to be bad for everybody. These verses are specifically talking to his people. To his disciples. Look, it's going to get bad for everybody. It's going to get particularly bad for you. Even as he's telling them how bad it's going to get. Within all of that, they can stand firm without being led astray. Because they know that their suffering has a purpose. The Spirit's going to be with them as they suffer. The Spirit's going to be giving them words to say. Their words are going to be proclaiming the Gospels among all the nations. And when it ends, and it will, doesn't go on for forever, there's salvation to be had for them. So even when the church is persecuted, you must stand firm. Even when devastation comes, you must not be led astray. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand... Let the reader understand. But let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So stay the course even when utter devastation comes. And it's going to come. There will be a day for his hearers when all they can do is flee to the mountains. When getting out is all that matters. When all that they can do for pregnant and nursing mothers is to pity them. When timing is the only mercy you can see. Pray that it may not happen in winter. These things are as bad as they have ever been or ever will be. And even then, notice how Jesus is preparing his people. He's warning them. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's giving them signs. He's giving them things to look for, which will matter when the time is of the essence. When they see the the abomination of desolation, that's when they're supposed to run. Whatever that is. And there's several theories, which we won't have time to get into today. Some are more compelling than others. Whatever it was, it was designed to be something that they would recognize. He's saying, let the reader understand. They would know. When they heard it, they would know exactly what he was talking about. It's not supposed to be confusing for us. And when he warns them, he even tells them where to go. He doesn't say, just leave. He says, if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Go with haste. Don't worry about what else you might bring. The house is burning down, so you can leave the wedding dress. This paragraph ends with the same encouragement in verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Even when devastation comes, Christ expects us to respond by not being led astray. That's the first response we can see. But he also desires that, he will, that we will trust his salvation. That's the second response that Christ encourages in his people, to trust in his salvation. Because he has prepared us for endurance. Verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Immediately after explaining the extent of the devastation in verse 19, he continues encouraging us to persevere. Persevere. Keep going. We should, not, we should keep pressing forward because salvation is what awaits us on the other side. Those who endure to the end will be saved. We have to keep believing who he is and what he says, even though there will be people who try to lead us astray through signs and wonders. He's preparing his people To not be led astray by telling us what's going to come. He's preparing us to persevere. To stay the course. That's why he's told us all things beforehand. We're not thrown to the wolves. We're not left to our own devices. He's revealed this to us. That we might be able to stand firm trusting in his salvation. Because his salvation is how the tribulation ends. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Salvation is actually how all the devastation ends. It's the end of the end. The devastation he's referring to, the apocalypse that will occur, ends in salvation. It's not something that's just for fun. It's for the salvation of his people. Back in verse 20, it says this, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Saying, without all these scary things that Jesus is talking about, no one is going to be saved. Without him bringing these things to an end, no one is going to be saved. God is actually showing grace to his people by bringing this current order, this current world, to its end. And if we'll think about it, We should already know that. For those of you who are saved, for those of you who are in Christ on that day, what are you actually saved from? Well, hell, damnation. You're saved from an eternity apart from God, from the right judgment on your soul as a sinner, that he will give you what you deserve in an eternity in hell. That's what you're saved from in him. You're saved from an eternal death sentence in a very real place called hell. But people aren't ultimately judged and sent to that hell now. That judgment, the final judgment, occurs when? At the end. It's called the final judgment for a reason. It's at the end. So what you have now is the sure promise, the steadfast hope, the assurance based on the character of God that you will be saved then. But without that judgment... Without the things that lead to that judgment, there's no salvation to be had. There's no grace to be offered. There's no situation in which you can be saved from judgment until the judgment actually happens. What you have now is the sure promise and steadfast hope that you will be saved based on Christ's work on your behalf then. So if God never cut short the days, if he never brought all things to a close... There would ultimately be no salvation for you. You're in eternal limbo, basically, waiting for a salvation that he's promised that never comes. But he brings it through the things that we're looking at in this chapter. It's a similar instance in verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The false Christs and the false prophets are hoping to lead astray the elect. But what does it say? If possible. If it could happen, that's what they want it to do. Even when he's warning his people of their intentions, he's making clear that for his people, it won't work. It can't work. The elect can't be led astray. It is simply not possible for those who are in Christ to lose their salvation. For those who are in Christ to no longer be his. That for those he has chosen... You are his, absolutely, without a doubt, today and every day, always in him. You cannot be led astray. The elect won't be led astray because it's not possible. So even in his warning to look out for the false Christ and the false prophets, there's a promise to trust his salvation. And when it gets as bad as it can, when the end finally comes... After all these things he's warning about, 
that's when he shows up. At the crescendo, verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see, we often talk about the end of the world like it's a scary thing. It's something that that should make us afraid. But these verses, when you read them in context, should actually be a huge comfort to his people. It should actually be something that emboldens us, his people, that makes us feel better as his people. Though the sun is darkened, though the moon gives no light, though the stars even fall out of the sky and the heavenly powers are shaken, that's not the end. Chaos isn't the end. The end is the glorious and perfect Son of Man coming in His glory, among the clouds, in His power. And He comes not to double the devastation. He comes to gather His people to Himself from everywhere, from all over, in every direction, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He will bring His people into His presence that they might be saved, that they might receive the salvation He has promised them, that He has won for them. There will be a tribulation, yes. Things will get bad, they'll get worse. But all of that ends in his return, in his salvation. We should respond to the end of the world by trusting in the salvation that awaits us on the other side, even now. Not in fear, but in trust. That he who has promised is faithful and he will save us. The third response that Christ encourages us to have in this text, in this chapter, is for us to stay awake. We should stay awake as we wait for these things. Because he's near. Verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He and his return is much closer than we tend to believe. He points to the fig tree, making the point that you know winter is over and summer is here when the fig tree puts out its leaves. He's telling them the signs to look for, the things to be aware of, to know that he's close. And he even says this generation, the one he's speaking to in this day, won't pass away until all this comes to pass. That ultimately is his answer to the initial question they asked at the beginning of the chapter. When will this take place? His answer, finally, ultimately is in your generation. In this generation. And I think that's still true. He certainly wasn't lying to them. He just has a different meaning in generation than what we generally would hear. We hear a generation and we think, okay, my generation... And he's saying, no, the generation of you, my people, you, my church, in your time, it will come, whenever that is. Way back in the introduction, I talked about the threefold fulfillment of prophecy, an initial fulfillment, a fulfillment in Christ, and a final, ultimate fulfillment at the end. And I think we can see all three fulfillments in our text today, this chapter. It's fulfilled literally, because literally the temple that he was looking at and referring to, it was destroyed. In A.D. 70, roughly about 30 to 35 years after this happened, the Romans came in to quench a rebellion and laid siege to the city. The temple was totally destroyed. It was explicitly ordered that the temple would be destroyed by Titus, the Roman general. 
And the, but the Christians weren't there when this happened. They had left about a year or so before. Because they saw the abomination of desolation, whatever that was, and they bailed. They went to the mountains. They heard Christ's words, listened to them, and responded to them. They decided whatever this was, was the abomination of desolation shortly before the siege. It was probably the murder of priests in the temple, probably a literal clown being deemed as the high priest. And they went to the mountain range over and outside Jerusalem. Being in 70 AD after Christ said this in the early 30s, that generation that he's talking to was still there. All this happened in their generation. This text literally was fulfilled. But it's also been fulfilled in Christ. Christ, who is the temple of God, the place where God's presence and being dwelt, was destroyed. You can see this even better in the the John passage that says something similar to this. When Jesus is saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That the destruction of the body of Christ was the destruction of the temple of God. That's the analogy that's being made there. He was crucified and killed. And when he breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, showing that we didn't need the temple to worship God anymore. The temple didn't matter. It was irrelevant. And on the day he died, what happened over the whole land? There was darkness. There was an earthquake. And it's after that tribulation of his death that he comes back to life, that he ascends to heaven among the clouds and in his glory. All of this happened just days after Jesus said this, during that same generation. This text, this chapter, in some sense, has been fulfilled in Christ. However, we're still waiting for the final fulfillment. We're awaiting the end of the birthing pains. We haven't yet seen as bad as things could get. The gospel hasn't yet been proclaimed among all the nations yet. He hasn't returned in the fullness of his glory to judge the living and the dead, though he says it will come soon. In the generation of his people who read his text, who hear his words, it will come in our time, whatever our time may be. Our time in 300 years, our time today, whenever that may be, it will occur in the generation of his people. He is nearer than we think in more ways than we tend to recognize. But we can trust that this will all happen and stay awake for that day, knowing that though the heavens and the earth will pass away, his words will never pass away. All is going to come to fulfillment. So it's up to us to stay awake. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He asked his people to stay awake. We have to be awake, be, be awake and stay that way because no one knows when that final fulfillment is going to come. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, there's some explaining I have to do here in this verse because it's really easy to read this incorrectly. It's really easy to hear that and think that it's saying something it doesn't say. Let me tell you what it does not mean. 
This verse is not saying that Jesus did not or does not know when he will come back. Jesus knew. He had to have known. It can't be saying that he doesn't know for several reasons. But the simplest way I can put it is this. Jesus is God. He says he and the Father are one. John 10.30. He says all that the Father has is mine. John 16.15. It is impossible for any person of God... Father, Son, or Spirit, to know or do something without the other two persons knowing and doing that same thing. The Father, Son, and Spirit are God. Each is God. You can't have one know something that the others don't. Jesus did and does know the day and hour that he will return. So then, what do we do with this text that comes really close to explicitly saying that he doesn't know? There's two examples, that two explanations I think are helpful Though there's certainly more that could be said to explain this if we had more time. First of all, when he says he knows not, what he's saying is that I'm not telling you. I know I'm not saying it to you. He's not letting us know. Though he knows, it's not for you to know. So functionally, it's as if he doesn't know. And you might hear that and say, yeah, but that's not what he says. But here's another example from Scripture of how to use know in the same way. Uh, think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.2, which should be on the screen behind me. It says this. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, when we read that, we don't read that as if Paul literally decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he's saying is, I decided to make you know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was what I told you. Though I knew more, I decided to make you know only that. We understand that he's saying that he knows more, but he's not telling them any more than what he is willing to show them in that moment. I think that's a helpful way to read Jesus' words in verse 32. Another explanation is that Jesus is speaking to emphasize his human nature and make it clear that there's no way for any human to know that day or hour. Though there were signs for everything else, though he was telling them all things beforehand to be able to see when the abomination of desolation would come, that's when you flee to the mountains. For this, the final end, He's saying there's no signs. You can't figure it out. No man could possibly tell you when this is going to happen. Sometimes the Bible says things about Jesus that we have to understand are speaking specifically about one of his two natures. Either the human nature or the divine nature. When Jesus slept, we don't read that and think, wow, God was sleeping for that couple hours. Though Jesus is God. We read it and say, oh, in his humanity, he slept. In his humanity, he was hungry. In the same way, we should understand that when he says he doesn't know, he's making clear that a man can't know the day or the hour. It's impossible for any man to know that thing. Not that he, the God-man, doesn't have access to this knowledge. Not as if he just can't ask who he is. Wait, when is this going to happen? He knows as God, but he's emphasizing that men have no way to know. And that point is why we have to stay awake. Because you have no idea when the final fulfillment is coming. That's what he's telling them. You don't know when he's coming. There's no sign for when he's going to appear. So you have to be awake in preparation for that time. Everything else had signs and warnings coming before them so that they would be aware of the timing. But this doesn't. So it's up to us to be on guard. To stay awake. The last thing we want to do from these verses is to be sleeping when the master returns. Not paying attention. Not doing what he has tasked us to do. Not obeying his words that he gave us before he left. So it's my prayer this morning that we will stay awake. 
that we will be who he has called us to be. Stay the course. Don't be led astray by false doctrines, false practices. Don't listen to the other voices that are trying to deceive you. Focus on him and his truth. Don't be led astray. Trust that your salvation is coming. No matter what the tribulation may look like, no matter how bad or confusing it may get, no matter what kind of persecution you may incur for his name's sake, trust that he will come to gather his elect from the whole earth, that he won't miss you as he's doing that. So stay awake waiting and hoping for that day. Do the work that he's called you to. Make disciples. Carry your cross. Follow him on his way. Though God's plan can occasionally feel scary, know that Christ has told you these things so that you'll respond not in fear, but in trust. That's my hope for us this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for telling us about your coming, for giving us signs which we should see and understand, but also for keeping some things hidden from us that are too great, too mysterious for us to ever be able to comprehend. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for being the God who returns to save his people. Thank you that even on the other end of our uh, tribulation, on the other end of whatever devastation may come, there's salvation awaiting for those who endure. Help for us to trust that. Let us stand firm and not be led astray, even though many will try to deceive us. Help for us to learn the lessons you've given us. Help for us to be awake, to do what you have tasked us to do in the interim. To trust that though we don't know the day, don't know the hour, don't know the time, we know what to do while we wait. Help for us to be the kind of people who put these things into practice. Help for us to focus on you and what you want us to get out of your word every time we read it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.